Welcome to a special episode of the C-Suite podcast that we're recording in partnership with Free Market at Fintech Connect 2022 at the Excel in London. Fintech leaders from the entire Fintech ecosystem are here for two content-packed days to discuss open banking, embedded finance, the future of payments, blockchain, AI, the metaverse, regtech, and lots more. I'm going to be interviewing some of the key speakers and guests here on the free market stand to give you a flavor of the event and to find out more about the topics discussed. Joining me now is Suzanne Chisti, CEO of Fintech Circle. Welcome to you, Suzanne. Thanks very much, Graeme, for having me. No, not at all. You've just chaired a panel about Fintech for Good on the stage here at Fintech Connect. How did that go? It went very well. We launched our Fintech for Good film today, which was a co-production between ITN Business and Fintech Circle, where we spoke about how the Fintech sector comes together to provide solutions for society, in fact, you know, and how Fintech companies improve society by, for example, focusing on environmental solutions, social solutions, and government solutions. And we highlighted companies such as Vitesse, Realtime and other companies focused on fintech for good, which can be payment solutions, for example, you know, focusing on payments. It can be focused on insurance solutions such as Policy Expert or Quant, which offers payments across Latin American clients who often have no access to payment systems and who need to be able to conduct payments at low cost, you know, real time. So it was an overview globally what the fintech sector does to service customers who are often excluded, you know, in a better way. And we talk about financial inclusion. This is like one of the key themes we spoke about in the film. So where did this film come from? Who came up with the idea and why did you decide to put it together? It was an idea which Fintech Circle has been working on for a while because myself, you know, as CEO of Fintech Circle, I saw since I launched, you know, Fintech Circle eight years ago that the focus shifted from doing no harm to doing good. And that's what we have seen becomes more and more important for our society, where in the UK we've got a cost of living crisis, you know, where 40% of UK citizens have to choose between heat or eat. So we as fintech sector and the financial services sector have a responsibility to play towards society and try to find and develop more and more solutions which help people in need. I'm not just talking about 4 million of UK citizens who have no bank accounts, but even people who have got bank accounts but who are still excluded from financial services and also businesses and SMEs who need to get access to funding, who need to get access to opportunities more and more where fintech really can make a difference. And that's what this film, Fintech for Good, is all about. It really showcases, you know, what the fintech sector can do to help both individual clients and corporate clients to improve their lives. And so it's your kind of role to, to unify the fintech space, is it? To kind of G them up and get them going and get them behind this cause. And, and do you feel like they are doing that and they're ready to do that? I definitely see that, you know, especially here also at the conference Fintech Connect here in London. You know, we see so many fintech companies who have got a purpose which is more than just profitability. I mean, I think all of fintech companies, of course, at some stage want to become profitable. Many are profitable already. And anybody who has got investors behind them, you know, has got this path to profitability ahead of them. But nowadays, 
People want purpose. You know, and fintech companies want a purpose. They are serving, which often is more than profits, but it's really how can we service society overall. And that's what fintech for good is. It's kind of how can we combine purpose with profits and how can we service our customer segments in a way which gives more sense and makes also our employees, you know, more empowered. Because what we found out that employees who have got leaderships, you know, in the organization, which actually allow them to celebrate diversity, you know, to celebrate environmental goals, are much more motivated and much more incentivized to do the right thing for the company and for the customers than any other businesses would do. So that's why, you know, FinTech for Good really should become a reality. And we hope it does become a reality in 2023 when FinTech companies look into the new year and think what should be the focus for next year. And we recommend this should be the focus for the whole sector that fintech for good should be like the north star you know which we are aiming for you invest in fintechs bearing in mind what you were saying earlier about fintech for good do you think it's more beneficial for fintechs to have that purpose that you were speaking about before and is that going to give them more chance of receiving that investment a very good question graham and 100 yes I have seen a huge trend in the investment sector that investors looking for ESG investments. We call it also green investment, you know, investing with purpose. So when you think about the whole global investment space, a huge chunk of the whole investment volumes flows into ESG-driven funds, for example. And that's, you know, at the listed equity stage. But when you go down into the unlisted private market stage, which we operate in in the terms of the fintech sector, there's more and more demand for social-driven investment opportunities where investors, and there are lots of funds out there who want to be part of this movement where fintech implements and focuses on good solutions for society so there will be lots of investments available for those fintech companies to combine purpose with profits long term yeah sure one final question let's look ahead to 2023 and be and beyond what do you see as the key trends next year I would say one of the key trends is embedded finance, you know, which is one trend which we see uh, playing out because embedded finance is basically what it means is that you're as a consumer, you know, you go after your normal day and you want often fintech solutions without knowing that these are fintech solutions. So when you, let's say, you, you buy a property, but you need a mortgage for that, you need insurance for that, but you don't wake up in the morning and say, I want, you know, one of these products now, but you, it's part of the journey towards your end goal. And therefore, what we see is that these embedded finance solutions will become more part of our lives, but they will not be visible to the end clients because they're just as part of their customer journey, they will be embedded. And so that's a huge trend we're seeing in the sector. And I would say the second trend which we're seeing is definitely financial inclusion. You know, we've got still a one third of the adult population who has got global you know, bank accounts. You know, and I think neither you nor I can imagine to live without a bank account. It's just unimaginable. And in the UK, we've got four million people who have got no bank accounts. And what we've seen now, that fintech really makes a difference to people's lives. So when you think in the UK, and you think about the big issue, you know, lots of homeless people who sell the big issue on UK streets, in the past, they could only accept cash. 
because a big issue vendor who is homeless, has no address, could never open a bank account and you certainly couldn't get a debit card terminal or a credit card terminal. This has changed now. So nowadays a homeless person who wants to sell the big issue can get access to a credit card, debit card terminal, can accept credit card payments thanks to fintech. You know, and this changes lives yeah. because now it helps social mobility. And that's, I think, will be a huge trend, you know, where we really can see a huge difference on a day-to-day -day basis. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule today to come and speak with us. Suzanne Chisti, thank you. Thanks very much, Brain. Okay, I'm here with Matt Jackson, VP Relationship Manager at Free Market. Why are Free Market at Fintech Connect? Well, for a long time, Free Market have maybe been misunderstood as the, the biggest secret in fintech. I think we've had a lot of awards come our way this year. 12th fastest growing company, privately owned in the UK by the Financial Times, recently just announced in the Deloitte Fast 50. And I think we want to be much more present in the market now. We uh, feel very passionately that we've got a strong product with good market fit that will attract a lot of customers. So we want to be present at these events and, and make a much bigger noise about ourselves. Sure, obviously there's a lot of discussion around payments at this year's event. What do you see as the the top three trends in payments going into 2023? Payments is such a broad term that I think a lot of times it can be confused between consumer payments and business payments. So I'll, I'll talk about payments in the broadest sense. The consumer adoption and expectation that comes with faster payments, I think, is bleeding over into the B2B payment space. And the technologies and systems required to support that, I think, are going to be a real focus for companies as we move into 2023. Swift to a sort of the 900 pound gorilla in the market are for the first time really starting to talk about that in their marketing so I think that's a really good sign. I think embedded payments and not just payments but financial services more broadly is going to become more and more important and again is probably driven by a consumer expectation. And then the use of blockchain technology for all different payment use cases. So that doesn't necessarily mean crypto, but crypto will be a part of that. The use of stable coins for cross-border payments. And we're seeing many, many more governments starting to talk about adopting central bank digital currencies. And what about the regulators? What role do you see them playing in the payments industry? They're so key to everything that they do. I think what we'll see in 2023 is a move from them being more of an oversight body to much more of an enabler. I think there's so much disruption in the industry, so many emergent technologies, so many new players coming into the market with different services and products that they will need to move much more quickly in how they are generating policies around those technologies and use cases. But also, fintech's in such an interesting place at the moment, and a lot of people are calling it a crypto winter, valuations are becoming down, but actually more and more technologies and systems are, are coming to the fore. So I think regulators are going to have to move much more quickly in how they can understand those, adopt those and regulate them and oversee them. And let's look at it from the merchants perspective as well. What do you see as the biggest challenges for them this year and then obviously going into 2023? I don't think it's really changed over the past couple of years. And I think because technology is moving at such a pace, complexity is a real issue for them. So consumer demand for frictionless and easy payments is always on the rise and new technologies spring up all the time. And merchants have to decide where to invest and who to partner with to take that forward. So that complexity is really important. I think what we've seen over the past two years and we will see over the next three years 
is that merchants will need to focus much more on their front end and partner with really great companies on the back end so that they can deliver a great experience to the consumer and not have to worry about how they do that. And that's where companies like Free Market and many others at Fintech Connect can come in. Brilliant. Matt Jackson, thanks very much for joining me Thank today. You. Cheers. I'm joined now by Matt Bonetti, head of DCX at Hargreaves Lansdowne. So I think a good place to start, Matt, would be, what does DCX mean? Well, that's a great question, Graham. DCX stands for Digital Colleague Experience. So I run a team whose job it is to make sure that all of the people who work in our digital teams, our technology, data, product teams, they have a really good working experience. The idea being that the more productive we can make them, the more we can feed their motivations, the better code they can deliver to our clients and the better outcomes we can achieve. So why did you decide to do this? How did this project come about? So I've been doing this for about two years now. Something that's still relatively new in the market is the concept of developer experience, or DX. Companies are realizing that developers are very expensive. Being able to get more bang for your buck makes a huge amount of commercial sense. So we started with that two years ago, um, coming out of COVID, and we've expanded it to cover all of the various parts of digital, because obviously being able to deliver great product to your clients is not just about the people who write the code. It's about making sure the various people in that value chain really can work effectively together. Yeah, so how, how do you do that then? <laughs> <laughs> so we've been very heavily influenced by a, a chap you may have heard of called Daniel Pink. He's done a very influential book called Drive, all to do with what are the intrinsic motivations of people. And he talks a lot about there being three key things. There's autonomy. People want to be able to take their own decisions, have control over their working environments. They want to be empowered and trusted to deliver good work. They want to have a very clear purpose. They want to know that what they do is important. They want to know why, even though they may feel like a small cog in a big machine, they actually are doing something really good, a decent purpose at the end of it. And lastly, they want to achieve mastery. They want the ability to get better at their job. Everyone always wants to do a good job, right? And they always want to be able to get incrementally better. So we've built a team really to try and make sure that our teams get those three things, to make them as motivated as they can be. Because generally, people who are highly motivated will always deliver good outcomes. And did that surprise you when you read that book or when you first kind of took those ideas on board? Most people would think, well, they want more money, they want more holidays, yeah. all of those kind of things, tangible things in the workplace. Did that surprise you at all? Yes, and I think one of the most interesting things we've done is try and turn this into a little bit of a science. We've run a series of experiments to try and find out what works and what doesn't. A lot of the things, to be honest, we thought were going to work basically failed miserably. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's the joy of these things, right? You know, you, you have to learn through experience. And we tried to take a very much a client-led approach. Obviously, companies are, are very used to working in a product-led way where you listen to your clients and you think about their needs and you develop their personas. We've really taken the same approach, but just for our own colleagues. So essentially, we've sat down and listened to them. And one of the things that really fascinated me is that the number one thing that our colleagues value in their experience is autonomy, overpay. Pay is number two, don't get me wrong, <laughs> pay is still important. But, but yeah, the thing that they really value as being most important is being treated as adults, really, and being given that autonomy to do good work. And what's been the feedback from them now you've started this project? Uh, are they quite energised by it? I, I'd like to hope so. Yep. Uh, Lord knows there's still lots of things to be done. I will be talking here tomorrow about uh, some of the successes and failures we've had. As I say, it hasn't been a completely smooth ride, but it certainly it's been very interesting and, and there's been a lot to learn along the way. And uh, really, the, the most important thing with these is just to make things incrementally better. You know, there's no silver bullets to all of these things. It's that classic, you know, build, learn, measure, just keep on having that feedback cycle. To yeah, is that places. part of the process to actually, to make those mistakes? You, you're quite conscious at the start 100%. of the project, we are going to make some mistakes and that's fine. Absolutely. And yeah. 
Another thing that we found really helps is to be very open in our communication. Again, you know, to be super clear that these are experiments. Yeah. Some of them are going to work and some of them aren't. Yeah. And maybe also realizing that you can make some people happy and develop some people's experience, but it's, it's very hard to get something that works for everyone. So being super clear that these experiments maybe are really looking for this persona and there will be other ones we'll do later that maybe might help other people is really important in making sure they all trust in the process. And, you know, being able to show regular small progress is always, uh, it's a much better story to tell than, you know, promising them that things are going to be 100% better two years' time. So clear communication is, is obviously clear with your existing workforce, but yes. just take us back a step. How did you approach the recruitment process? What, what were your priorities when bringing people onto the team? So we had a couple of hypotheses that we wanted to test. The, the first one was we really wanted to build a diverse team. Again, something which we think about a lot when we talk about our clients is we need to make sure we have colleagues building products who represent the diversity of our clients. So we thought we should take the same approach. The truth is digitalism is still a male, white dominated industry. We wanted to try and bring in people from different backgrounds to make sure we got that real diversity of thought. And the second idea we had was that it might be quite useful to have people who hadn't worked in digital in the past perhaps people who didn't have any preconceptions about what a good working experience might actually be. People who might be able to see the wood for the trees, maybe, if you know that expression. So that has actually worked very, very well. My team is over 70% female or non-binary. We're very neurodiverse. The majority of the people in the team have only worked briefly in technology in the past. We've had people who've worked in finance. We've had people who've worked in data. So they've got very transferable skills. But I think it's been very helpful to have them come in and just ask the stupid questions, the, why do you doing it that way? And I'm sure there was a good idea or a good reason for doing this once upon a time, but does that still make sense? We talk about being politely disruptive, you know, trying to challenge our teams to say, why are you doing things the way you are? But hopefully to then get to a better outcome at the end of it. Yeah, that's no, a fascinating concept and project. I mean, what do you see as the key successes so far? I mean, you've said it's a bit of a trial and error kind of system, but yes. what are the successes? So our two key measures at the moment are wanting to give the teams more productive time to do good work. That's pretty simple. It's, it's wanting to simplify things. How much time do you lose in every day because you can't find a piece of information that's key? How much time do you waste because you need to find the right person to talk to to get something done, right? So one of the key measures is just being able to save people a little bit more time. And we hope that they will either use that time to, again, build better products for our clients, but also to get better at being able to develop new skills. HL, like all big finance companies, is going through a digital transformation. We're asking our teams constantly to learn new skills. And we've been at the forefront and being able to make it easier for them to get access to those new skills, like working in the cloud, which perhaps they haven't been exposed to in the past. And the second key measure is around autonomy. We measure perceived autonomy of the teams regularly so we can see a slight but positive improvement in, in how autonomous the teams feel. And a lot of that is just, again, allowing people to know who the teams are, where are their boundaries, who's responsible for what. And allowing people to work autonomously is just being super clear about what they have to do. So we make sure that the guide rails, the policies that they have to comply with, are very, very easy uh, to understand. Because then, if you know what you have to do, everything else is then completely up to you. you know? Go and use that creativity for good. Now, this project is focused on the digital teams at Hargreaves Lansdowne, but does this have 
wider implications for the company? Could it be yes. spread elsewhere? Definitely, and one of the approaches we've taken, as I mentioned before, is to be experimental, to just to start small, to find out what works, and then to scale up success. A good example is focusing on how we onboard people into the company. We focused on a very, very small group of people coming into our tech teams, working in the cloud, but you won't be surprised to learn that some of the things that make their onboarding experience much better are equally applicable to everyone. A lot of it is about simplifying processes and how do you give them information before they actually join the company that enables them to be able to be fully productive on day one. We have an aspiration that our developers should be able to be fully productive inside 48 hours of joining the company. There's still a little bit of work to be done there, but making sure they have the right kit, with the right software on, they've got the right permissions to the systems, Again, taking these, finding out what works in a small area, we found it is, is actually very easy to scale up and will have benefits for the rest of the company and the, the months and years ahead. Listen, thanks so much for, for sharing all Pleasure. this with us and join us on the podcast. Matt Bedetti, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Joining me now is Robin Scher, Head of Strategic Fintech Investing at Lloyd's Banking Group. Good to have you on the podcast. Thank you, great to be here. Lloyds Banking Group have been making great strides in the fintech investment space in the last few months, haven't they? Why are you embarking on this strategy? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a new strategy, although we have invested in fintech for quite a while. We have had investments in fintech, such as Thought Machine, Finality, uh, a good few years ago. And those normally happened when we were already entering into a commercial partnership. And it just so happened, fortuitously, that the fintech was also raising. Now we've developed that strategy to have a a fintech team going out hunting for new fintechs to drive our strategy forward. That's the team that I kind of head up the origination of. So we're out there looking for fintechs from C to Series B and we're minority equity investors. So we're trying to take a small part of them and help them grow and also grow a commercial relationship with them in time. So we've decoupled that need for a commercial relationship and we're just focusing on the, the growth and the strategy of the fintech going forward. What has the reaction been to this strategy, both internally within Lloyds Banking Group and externally as well? So internally, I mean, huge amounts of excitement. People talk about the kind of big incumbent banks being kind of culturally reticent to fintechs coming in. I've not seen that. We've got a kind of group of people growing wider and wider now that they know what we're doing, coming to us saying, oh, in my space, I've seen this. In my space, I've seen this. So, I mean, everyone is super excited. And that's literally from the top down. CEO, CFO, people are getting behind this as a strategy and want this to succeed. So internally, a huge amount of excitement and and a genuine belief that this is going to bring about a proper change in the organization. And then externally, I mean, I've, I've got a commercial banking background, so I'm used to everything externally being a dog-eat-dog world. Uh, you're trying to win business from other banks, uh, you're really going after customers. In this space, it is completely different. The collaboration I've seen has been phenomenal. So some of the deals that we're working on at the moment, some are kind of collaborative with a consortium of other banks. So I understand and know the strategic investors in other banks. And some are with VCs uh, and the VCs have got in touch with us, have brought us things and really value a strategic investor. And then I'd, I'd kind of stretch that even more to say externally, the fintechs that we are investing in want to work with banks now. I'd say a while ago, a long time ago, fintechs were either trying to 
combat banks and now they're really trying to kind of work with us and they know that they've got a proposition and working with us as a strategic investor is going to bring them to the next phase of their journey. So just externally we're seeing just brilliant buzz as well. What are some of the success stories so far? Can you tell us about some of those? Yeah, of course. So we, we set up this, I shouldn't call it a fund because of how we're holding the money, but I will. We set up this FinTech fund, which is a 50 million pound kind of ring-fenced money on the Lloyds balance sheet, which is specifically to invest in FinTechs over the next year. So we set that up about six months ago, but that also had to be set up with the process and governance around the actual investing itself. So it took us a couple of months to kind of get that off the ground and then go out scouting and we we kind of made our first investment about three weeks ago in an app called Money Hub, which we were really excited by. So that's a 15, one, five million pound investment, which will probably be the biggest ticket size that we do because uh, we're meant to be about one and a half to 10 million pound ticket size. So of course, first investment, we already break that. So that was absolutely brilliant. That's already a success, but it also shows and proved to us that the model works. The investment committee, the governance, managing to get the money out the door in a way that Lloyd's felt was suitable and appropriate in a kind of risk adherence fashion. That's a brilliant success. And then we've got five transactions on the go at the moment, which is brilliant, but draining. So some of those investments could be landing any day now, I guess, could they? Well, one of them, Graham, is going to land today. So I'm, I'm going to have to leave this conference about lunchtime to go and close a deal. And hopefully we'll be able to publicise that a bit later today. So yeah, one today, another one hopefully by the end of the year, and then three in kind of January, February next year. So we are, we are busy bees over at kind of FinTech Investing in Lloyds. Yeah, we look forward to hearing about those for sure. What do you think these investments say about how Lloyds views the health of the FinTech space in general? Are you... Are you worried at all about challenging market conditions? Look, we'd be fools not to be worried about the market conditions. And if you if you speak internally and externally, some people are saying to me, oh, it's a great time to get involved in fintech investing because there's great deals out there. But for me, it's also an incredibly worrying time to get involved because lots of people need money and there is a desperation out there as well. I think that it is, it's showing a, a huge leap of faith, but also... I would say not just leap, a huge faith in the fintech market that we are willing to invest now. We're doing it with our eyes open. We know what the market conditions are. We think this is a great time and we think that where we are now, we're kind of going to go up, we're going to grow. Investing in equity now, I think it's the right time to do it. I'm just very, very glad that we didn't start investing last year. Well, Robin, thanks for joining us today. No Tell us about all. all these insights and uh, we look forward to hearing more soon. Great, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Joining me now is Haranda Misra, Chairman and CEO of GMAX Group. Nice to see you here today. Good to see you too. Yeah, what are your impressions of FinTech Connect? Uh, what have you liked today? It's very energetic actually, and there's quite a lot of coverage with a diverse range of technologies, you know, central bank digital currencies, the metaverse and what it means for finance and blockchain, open banking, embedded finance. I mean, it, all the topics are there that you really need to know more about. Yeah, absolutely. Now listen, I've heard a lot today about traditional finance, centralized finance, decentralized finance. Yeah. How are all these things converging? Yeah, I mean, centralized finance, as we know, has been around for a long time. And then all of a sudden, for digital assets, you had these centralized exchanges. And then, of course, you've got the new blockchain-based decentralized finance. The thing is, they're all fragmented, but there's initiatives emerging, such as what we're doing at GMEX and other things out there that really brings all those together, because what technology can fragment, it can knit together. So there needs to be more interoperability between them, because a bit like the move from dumb phones to smartphones, it shouldn't matter what network you're on, what phone you're on, we should be able to talk to each other. What do you think this means for the traditional banks and the existing infrastructure? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, because existing infrastructure like SWIFT isn't going away anytime soon, of course. FinTech Connect, Swift spoke about central bank digital currencies today as well. But the 
same time, this new infrastructure has to embed itself into current infrastructure. The, the way I see it, you know, we had paper post, then emails came along, and then we had instant messaging, and they all coexist. The same way traditional finance, centralized finance, and decentralized finance will coexist. The banks really believe in blockchain and digital assets, artificial intelligence, but they need to do this in a way that is compatible with existing systems, risk management, governance, control, and regulation. And so we're going to see a move towards that, and that will service the asset managers as well. So you don't see this at all as an existential crisis for the existing banking structure? No, not at all. In fact, you know, at the moment there's a crypto crisis going on and really it supports the fact that mainstream finance works, those controls work, the opportunities are there, there's huge amounts of assets and activity. That needs to work more closely together with this kind of newer finance or neo-finance as I call it. Once you combine the two, the tides are going to rise more and some ships are, are going to be lifted more by rising tides. You mentioned crypto there. How quickly is blockchain technology evolving and could you try and give us some insight about what that means for the end customer? Absolutely. I mean, we've gone from over the past years proof of concepts and things that weren't necessarily revenue generating to now genuine opportunity. So for example, the major banks who are into uh, custody of assets, they've all announced that they've got crypto offerings or digital asset offerings more so, and they're going into this asset class, even if it's not necessarily for crypto per se, but it's for existing assets that are being tokenized. That offers a huge opportunity for their participants, the asset managers and others to get new forms of distribution, but also for the retail consumer, mom and pop, it means democratization finance because you know, if you look at parts of Africa, less than 3% in certain countries are banked. They don't have access to mainstream finance. Through these new forms of access, because it's, it's more widely available, those barriers to entry are much more reduced. Effectively, it means net incomes rise for everyone. It's actually something that I know has been spoken about at FinTech Connect today, FinTech for good. So when you talk about those challenges that they face in Africa, is that what you mean, that this technology can help people? Yeah, so FinTech for good on the one hand, and also uh, this technology now, you know, as we move from proof of work to proof of stake, it's also going to help to be green as well. And there's a lot of things that are being done in sustainability, whether it's voluntary carbon credit markets and other areas, water, energy, climate, food. I mean, they're all top of the agenda. And all of these things can play a part in terms of the way that they're accessed, the way that they're unlocked, the way that they're linked to finance using this type of blockchain technology. So, you know, we can really become ESG friendly and, and align with UN Sustainable Development Goals. So let's look into the future a little bit. That's what a lot of the conversations today are about, after all, it's trying to project what's going to happen next year and beyond. From a crypto perspective, what is its future as an asset class? Yeah, so recent events have shown that obviously there needs to be some level of reset. And actually, it wasn't necessarily that blockchain or, or decentralized finance has been found wanting. It was centralized finance in many ways where a, a, a lot of this activity was with centralized players and there's a lack of risk management, governance and control. So we're going to see with that backdrop increased regulations, but that's a good opportunity because crypto as an asset class is here to stay, but it needed to improve in terms of how it conducts itself and needs to mature. And I think this will accelerate that. And those events will then lead to 
far more opportunity if we look at some of those asset classes, whether it's sustainable asset classes like carbon credits or whether it's tokenized securities or whether it's central bank digital currencies or stable coins, these will all develop and coexist and work harmoniously together with mainstream finance. The final question, what does this all mean for the GMAX group? What are your priorities for the year ahead? Yeah, so we're firm believers in you know, what we call hi-fi or hybrid finance because we believe that centralized finance, traditional finance and decentralized finance will all interoperate and coexist. And there needs to be offerings out there such as what we're doing that acts as an orchestration layer in the middle of that to enable those seamless flows between those different constructs as well as enable marketplaces and exchanges across the world. Hiranda Misra, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. An absolute pleasure, thank you. I'm joined now by Yanush Diemko, co-founder of Zello Pay. Really good to have you on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. No problem at all. What are your impressions of FinTech Connect this year? Well, I think it's good that we're back face-to-face -face in conferences again, and I think it's a, it's a good mix. I mean, they have you know, five rooms with varying sessions around blockchain and crypto and fraud and payments, which is good. So if you want to listen to presentations, you can run around those rooms for two days, or if you want to mix, intermingle, and uh, meet up with the suppliers, then it's good as well. What do you see, you mentioned payments there, and obviously that's a big talking point at the event. What do you see as the key trends in payments at the moment? I think we're going digital still everywhere. I think, you know, COVID's pushed that forward. And I think, you know, all banks, all institutions are going to every single part of the process, you know, from KYC to reporting to fraud management, processing, everything is going digital. I think there's going to be more integration of crypto, assuming that there isn't a complete blowout of the industry. I think blockchain is going to find its applications, not in every single part of payments and finances. I don't think it's applicable to everything, but I think it's beginning to move into areas where it can add the most value. I think it's just a general integration of payments into everything. So, you know, open banking, open finance, embedded finance, embedded payments, going into other applications, whether it's transport, whether it's electric vehicle charging, whether it's all kinds of apps, everything be much more integrated through APIs into the whole ecosystem. Yeah, and you mentioned open <laughs> banking there as well. So where do you think we are with that? I mean, again, that's another big talking point. How is that going to progress into next year and beyond? I mean, I went to the Open Banking Congress, it was like uh, a month ago. That's been going on for a few years. And what I've seen is there are more companies in that space than just open payments. So it's not just processes integrating APIs and banking for payments, but it's more integrating that into other systems and dealing with payroll and fraud and transfers and general information and account information in one place. So I think open banking in the UK is more advanced than in many countries. I think the UK has got better open APIs. I think it's a bit further along than in other places. I think everyone is beginning to adopt it, but it's still the beginnings. As I understand, it's five, six million transactions per month. So that's got a long way to go before it becomes totally mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that has implications if, if one country is more advanced than another. How is that all going to connect in the future? Well, I suppose with Brexit, kind of in the fact that you need to license separately and integrate separately, yeah. the UK is going to go its way. And it's probably going to be quicker than the rest of Europe, I think, on open banking and open payments. I think in, in Europe, they're pushing for real-time account-to-account in Euro. So I think that's going to have an effect on implementing real-time payment schemes because we've got varying uh, success in many countries. I mean, in Poland, we've got Blick, which is the similar to Zap that was in the UK, except because it was adapted by six banks and they adapted one standard and there was a mass of users and consumers, I think it just blew up a lot better than it did here. And I think also in the UK, the banks, to the unfortunate 
success, they're legacy systems that have been around for a long time and not as easily adaptable to all these new payment rails no. as in other countries, which means vendors can add on systems on top of those to try and get banks to the next level without having to replace yeah, yeah. all their core systems. You don't see this as an existential crisis to the banks at all, do you? Well, I don't. I mean, I think the most interesting thing is, you know, Chase. Chase in the US, Mr. CEO Dimon said his idea for open banking and real-time payments is to support credit cards. And he said anyone who is not on board with this project is out of the bank. So he said, you know, we see credit cards and that form of payment dying. And I think that the reason he's doing it is because he has a massive acquiring operation. And real-time payments mean cheaper for merchant, which means his acquiring operation is probably going to mop up some of the money that he's losing on the interchange side. So if such a big bank is saying, you know, don't be scared of open banking and real-time payments, you know, we can use that to our advantage. I think it's not quite the same in Europe. Everyone, I think, on the banking side is a bit scared of interchange revenue disappearing than they are about you know, what is that going to lead to in the future in terms of new revenue streams. And give us a little bit of an indication about where Zello Pay fits into all of this. What are your priorities at the present? Well, we're an open banking startup, so we've been funded by the EU and we're just about to go live and commercialise our product next year. So we're focused on one niche, which is payments and account information in merchant apps integrated with merchant systems. So we want to kind of bypass acquirers and other intermediaries and allow the merchant, if he has his own app, to integrate with his own payment FPOS system, offering the user as simple a payment experience as NFC, but for the merchant a much, much lower cost. And I think one of the things when the merchant has an app, then one-click payment will also allow you to get a receipt, get an invoice, and add on your loyalty points without having to show a QR code, scan, and do something else, all through one app. And I think users will feel more comfortable with that than putting in their card details into yet another merchant app. Because if you have six merchant apps, you do not want to be putting your cards everywhere. And you get a new card, new payment number, new payment date, a new CVC code, you have to go in all of them. With open banking, you know, you'll authenticate yourself. And if you have the same provider across the various apps, in all of them, you'll just have to authenticate yourself for the payment without having to store any other details in any of the merchant's apps. Again, it's the beginning, so yeah. we'll see over the next year how the uptake is with consumers. But I think you know, merchants have a focus on simplicity and cost, and I think open banking and uh, PISP payments can certainly push them forward in that respect. Yeah. And where are you launching and in, in what territories are you launching? At the moment in Poland, because it's a bit of an effort to go through all open API bank testing sandboxes. Yeah. So we want to make sure that we've got the UX right, that the merchants enjoy the UX that we're offering and that it integrates with the systems in one country. But we're certainly hoping that the API is transferable. Again, you have to go and integrate with the banks, but once you've integrated with one type of merchant system, so if you've gone Wincor, Debold, NCR in one country or with a square with someone else, then you can transfer that to other countries where you've got exactly the same payment software. Sounds like a very exciting 2023 for you. So Yanish Diemko, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm joined by Susanna Ponce-Prement, Head of Financial and Credit Risk at Tide. Welcome to the podcast, Susanna. Thank you, Graham. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for the invite. No, it's, not it's... at all. I mean, you've been busy today, haven't, aren't you? You've yeah. spoken on two panel sessions today. The first about the impact of the metaverse for the fintech ecosystem. So what points were raised during that discussion? Yeah, so it was a really interesting discussion um, because the topic is so new and, you know, the industry is, is young, even though it's an industry with millions of users and billions of pounds which are invested in the metaverse ecosystem. The opportunities of what the metaverse means for the financial industry is what we discuss. The opportunities are endless. 
you know, it depends on how, you know, how fast the banks uh, will move and the readiness of the infrastructure in the blockchain, because these realities are built in a blockchain infrastructure. And, you know, like the interesting thing that we discuss is that in reality, the economy, um, there's a, an econ a visual economy already happening in these metaverse. So basically what is happening is that consumers are buying plot of lands, consumers are building their homes, they are renting the homes to host events, they have a gallery, like an art gallery selling NFTs, they also have their boats, and the companies are building their headquarters and selling shoes, you know, and yeah, anything yeah. that an avatar can wear, or, you know, is needed for, for the buildings. So basically, that creates a need to pay for those goods and services, and it, needs to, it creates a need to create, for example, exchanges, so platforms to enable these consumers to exchange their goods and services and receive payment for it. But the interesting thing about it is that the money has to come from somewhere. And what we have seen is that there will be an interaction between the financial system ecosystem, the fintech system ecosystem, and the metaverse ecosystem, because the fiat currency is held by the banks and by fintech companies. Then, you know, they, they will have to, for example, use the consumers, you know, get that money fiat currency from their banks, buy cryptocurrency in probably in a decentralized finance company and then they have to pay you know using that cryptocurrency in the metaverse that's the future <laughs> you yeah, know the yeah. future you know the relationship between those three ecosystems and have fluid and seamless the uh, funds will flow from one ecosystem to the other one the second session let's move on to that because i said you've been busy today that was a more broader one about decentralized finance and the future of the fintech landscape what do you think this means for the established traditional banks are they facing an existential crisis here uh, no i don't think so I, I don't i don't think that they do in the short term in even medium term because it depends on the customer needs and the segment's needs for example a corporation they need a type of product, for example, for trading, international trade, or you know, treasury products, derivatives, you know, large loans, which can still be provided by the larger banks, um, or traditional banks, and you know, in the future, probably those can be provided by fintech companies or the central finance organizations. However, I, I think that these banks have developed an expertise to understand this type of customers. A large corporations, for example, will probably will stay with them for some time. What they probably will do is to take advantage of the new technology that the centralized finance um, economy is developing in terms of you know the blockchain platforms and seamless journeys, customer journeys and transparency, you know, of the transactions, take advantage of that and, and integrate it with their own ecosystems to cater certain services, for example, international trade, to make it more transparent and faster. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of change, isn't there? So, uh, exactly. yeah, lots to look forward to next year. But Susanna Ponce-Froment, thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast. Really appreciate it. No, you're welcome. Thank you very much for the invite, Graham. Yeah. And it was a pleasure. And that's all for this special episode of the C-Suite podcast from Fintech Connect here in London. 
Thanks to all my guests for taking the time to share their insights and to Free Market for partnering with us on the podcast and hosting us on their stand. If you've enjoyed these interviews and you'd like to contribute to the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. The links to all our social media channels and pages can be found at the top of the page at csuitepodcast.com, where you can also catch up with our previous shows and follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a positive rating and review. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website, or you can find me, Graham Barrett, and the C-Suite podcast on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening, and goodbye.